Well, good morning. Welcome to the Orchard. We are glad you're here today. I'm Lead Pastor Daniel Self, and we are in our Genesis series. But first of all, I want to tell you about a trip I just got back from a little while ago to Ohio. And the thing I brought back, besides the story I'm about to tell you, is a severe case of uh, poison ivy, which here in Colorado, I'm a Colorado boy, born and bred, plants don't attack us here. So I had no idea what I was getting into when I climbed out of that riverbank from fly fishing. Yeah. Um, I was in Ohio, and we had to fly back to Denver and then to Vail. And when we got to the airport in Ohio, it was early in the morning. It was going to be a full day of flying. There was weather, and so all the flights were being pushed back. Everybody, and you know, if you've ever been to an airport and things aren't going directly on time, people, you see the best side of everybody, right? And so as our flight continues to be pushed back and pushed back. Finally, we get on. I fly into Denver, and there I'm joined with thousands of my soon-to-be best friends. I go to my gate, and there I am with other people traveling to Vail. And um, we're there for many hours, and it's not a good sign when they begin to change your gate every, you know, hour. And so I'm just traveling with the same group of people. I get to know them. There's a doctor from Valley View. There's this mom who has to get back for her daughter's first day of school. And I'm, I'm just getting to know people. And finally, it's, it's 11 p.m. We've been there all day. And we just, I mean, I could have driven home uh, and back and then got on my plane at that point. But I'm sitting there waiting with my new best friends, and I, I, I begin to make friends with the guy at the ticket counter. I don't know if you know this, but the person at the ticket counter, they're not in charge of the FAA. They're not in charge of who takes off and who doesn't, but people seem to think they are by how they treat them. But I'm, I make friends with this guy, and I'm, I'm kind of talking to him, and he says, well, it all depends on the pilot and his co-pilot if we get to fly tonight. Well, this 25-year-old kid, our pilot shows up, and I was like, wow, when did you pass flight school? <laughs> And he says, it all we, we take off tonight if, if my number two, uh, he's had a full day of flying if he wants to fly to Vail. And so I said, do what you can, man. We're all dependent on you. And so I go back over and I tell everybody, here's the deal. That's the pilot. And his name's, his name's Lee. And I'm talking to him. Don't worry. And so then Lee gets on the plane and I'm looking out the little window and I see a bunch of people with their luggage getting on our plane. From another gate, they snuck them out on the cover of night. It's 11.45 at this time, and I, I look at the gentleman who I'm now friends with behind the counter. I go, hey, we're not getting on that plane, are we? He goes, I can't officially tell you anything. <laughs> well, as you can guess, at some point, they cancel the flight, and everyone reacts to this differently. There's tears. There's cries of anguish. There's cries of anger. They call this gentleman who simply takes our tickets any number of names because it's his fault that the weather happened. And, and I immediately, I tell my wife I won't be home tonight. She said, I'm so sorry. And I said, it's okay. Like, and I, I texted, I said, I can't control anything here except for my attitude. And so then I began to just do what I needed to do. Call the hotel, immediately got a room. Then I changed my flight on my app and I was supposed to walk to... Uh, terminal and getting customer service. And I showed up there with thousands of, of people swarming and just a cacophony of yelling and gnashing of teeth. And I said, I'm not going to wait in line and, and do that. So I, I go out and wait for my shuttle and it's another hour and a half. And so we're way past midnight at this point and it's been a long day. I, I get to my hotel. I get my key. And you know how that feels. You've been traveling, but you got the key. And in only a few moments, you will be in your room in your bed. So I go up to my room and I, I go to put my key in and I look down and it says, do not disturb on the outside. And I go, 
has someone been sleeping in my bed? <laughs> so I, I go back downstairs, and I get back in line, and this, this uh, kind woman there, she goes, was someone in your room too? And I go, well, I'm sorry, what? She goes, yeah, someone was in my room. We were both surprised. Well, we're waiting, and this gentleman is, is, is yelling at the person behind the desk. He's this 25-year-old kid again, and he's just here on a regular night. He didn't know what was going to happen, and he's just getting bombarded, this guy behind the desk. And this gentleman says, give me five keys that will work for my room, and I'm off. And so he gets five keys and stomps off, and me and this woman would step up, and we're like, so what's the deal? He said, when the plane was canceled, when all the planes were canceled, everyone called a hotel, Expedia, Booka.com, he named off all these websites, and they all booked, double, triple booked the entire place. I said, is there any, I said, I have a room. He goes, lots of people have rooms. <laughs> I go, but I don't have a bed. He goes, no, you don't have a bed. I go, do you have a bed that's available like uh, a cot, a couch? He goes, no. At that point, the gentleman who wanted five keys comes storming back down, throws the keys on the desk and says, refund my money and storms off. He, he goes, like, they don't work. I look at the kid and I go, hey, you have one of those little machines that gets you in the room. How about you just get me in his room? We'll call it a day. I, I, need, I have a room. He, he doesn't want a room. He goes, that's a great plan. So me and this guy, we go up in the elevator. We go you know, a couple floors up. We get over there, and he plugs in this little machine into the key card because the keys aren't working. He types in the number. He goes, it won't take long. So okay, okay, that's good. Um, he opens the door to my room where my bed waits for me, and the internal slide lock, kunk, someone's in there. And this young gentleman, who is the front desk of the hotel, turns to me and says something I'll never forget. Run! He pulls out the cords and sprints down the hallway. And I go, what? And now I'm running. So I'm running after this gentleman. We get to the hotel. We get to the elevator. He goes, close it. Close. I'm trying to close it, man. Like it's a movie. It closes. And he just goes, oh, oh. And by this time, I am just laughing. I have learned as a pastor that the worse the story, the better the illustration. I'm like, bring it. Let's see what happens. And so I'm just dying. I get back down. I, I talk to that lady again. And she's like, what happened? I go, you wouldn't believe me if I told you. But if you watch my sermon couple weeks, you'll hear about it. So and then me and her team up and just start calling hotels, calling all the hotels in the area. We're like, we're going to, we got to get two rooms. And she goes, I got two, I got two. And so she immediately books hers with her card. She hands me the phone. I book mine with my card. We now have two rooms at this hotel somewhere in Denver. Hey, it's, it's a place. It's one something at this point. She walks up to that young man and she goes, we have two rooms at a different hotel and you're driving us. <laughs> and he goes, I am? She goes, oh yeah, you are. She goes, there's no taxis or Uber or any shuttles at this time of night. And he goes, and it was the funniest thing. Someone else had showed up to help, help him. This bleary-eyed girl was there and she is just logging on. The young man behind the desk looks outside and a big bus pulls up of people getting off. Travelers, weary travelers from a day of travel who are getting off at his hotel for their beds, not knowing there is no beds. He looks at the back at us and goes, I'll take you right now. <laughs> Now, he says, my car has no shocks and no muffler. And you would think when you're driving strangers around town at 2 in the morning, you would, you know, take it easy. Not this gentleman. No. And I, don't, I, I have I've shown my friends I was taking video from the back seat. And you know when you're trying to text and it thinks you're shaking your phone to try to erase it? It kept asking me, erase or undo? And I'm like, no, I'm just in a car with no shocks. And we would hit an intersection and we would... It was amazing. 
Long story short, I, I mean, I, I have vid- so much video of this. It's, it's, it's it just for my own benefit. It was so fun. I get to my room. I get to bed. And what I was hit with that night, finally about three, I get, to, I get, I get a room somewhere. And I get home the next day. But, but what struck me throughout the entire night was watching people who are in desperate need and how they responded. Like, how do you respond when you're in desperate need and have no control? Some people thought that weeping and gnashing of teeth would convince someone to do something. I, I saw lots of people who thought if I yell enough words, uh, angry words at someone, a plane will appear and it will fly me home. And they, they tried and they, until they were hoarse. I mean, I saw every reaction in the book. And the question today is, when you're in a, situa- a situation and you are desperate, you have a desperate need, how do you respond? Because the temptation is to respond with sin, with anger, despair, or a lot of us respond with trying to, to manipulate the situation or others to get our way. I saw it all. When we as humans really want something we can't have, how do we respond? Well, we're in the book of Genesis. We've been going through Genesis for months now. And today we're looking at how two brothers acted in a situation that they had desperate need in. Jacob and Esau. We mentioned them last week. If you missed, go back and listen to that. And Jacob and Esau are Abraham's grandsons. Abraham's the one that God gave his covenant blessing to. He has the blessing of all the future. And Abraham gave it to his son, Isaac. And then Isaac and Rebekah, they have uh, these two twins. Let's read about these two twins, Jacob and Esau. Genesis 25, starting in verse 24. When the time came to give birth, Rebekah discovered that she did indeed have twins. The first one was very red at birth and covered in thick hair, like a fur coat. So they named him Esau. Then the other twin was born with his hand grasping at Esau's heel. They named him Jacob. Esau was born red and hairy, so they named him Harry. And not like short for Harrison, like Esau means hairy one. He's hairy. Jacob was born grabbing his brother's heel, and so he's named Yaakov, which means supplanter. Supplanter uh, defined in the dictionary as someone taking the place of another through force, manipulation, scheming, or strategy. And we will see what that looks like in the, in the future. If you were here last week or you're familiar with the story, you remember that, that Jacob will in the future supplant and connive and deceive his way into getting his brother's birthright and blessing. Both that went to the older brother. And from there, the biblical account follows this supplanter, Jacob. As he goes about his life, he becomes the patriarch of the family and God's covenant blessing passes through him. And because Jacob is a patriarch, he often gets a free pass on his character. But one thing I want to remind you of is that when it comes to reading this book, the Bible, there is something in here that is very familiar to us. Each page of this book is filled with something we're familiar with, and that is people, like regular people. Real people, people like you, people like me, people who struggle with sin, people who are bad parents, people who drive in the left lane slow, people who make terrible decisions. People, it's full of people, and, and, and that's what the Bible is. It's, it's, it's about a God who wants to reveal his nature to people like you and I. I think that's a great thing. I mean, let's look at Abraham, this towering figure of faith that we want to be like, and we should want to, to emulate his faith. But Abraham also lied when he was under pressure. He deceived, he caved. 
His character caved at points when there was pressure. He made unwise decisions that led to family dysfunction and relational fallout. I say this because I don't want to just give a free pass to people because they're in the Bible, but because we can look at them as real people who can help us because guess what? You're a real people. And so you struggle with a lot of the same things they do. They can each teach us a lesson in faith. They can teach us about character, whether what to go to move toward or what to avoid. But the truth is they're like us. They struggle with sin and doubt. And they messed up their home life. They come from these things. And I think that's a good thing. And so today, we're going to look at Jacob. We're going to look at Esau and look at their character and some of the decisions that they made and how it impacted their life. Let's go to the scene of the first crime. One we've looked at before, verse 29. One day Jacob was cooking some stew and Esau arrived home from the wilderness. He's been hunting. He's exhausted. He's famished. Esau said to Jacob, I'm starved. Give me some of that red stew. All right, Jacob replied, but trade me your rights as a firstborn son. Give me the birthright, that birthright that promises all the servants and the flocks and the blessing and the riches and influence. I'll trade you with this bowl of stew for that birthright. Look, I'm dying here. I'm dying of starvation, says Esau. What good is my birthright to me now? What good is it then someday if I die now? But Jacob said, ah, first you must swear that your birthright is mine. And so Esau swore an oath, thereby selling his rights as a firstborn to his brother Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. Esau ate the meal, got up and left. He showed his contempt for his rights as a firstborn. Now let's start with Esau. Because his sin is obvious. And any preacher in America has preached something about Esau and, and, and what he has done. Esau has something that is of great worth. The birthright, the future. He will someday make him the most powerful person in his tribe, and his family. But one, one problem. Esau is hungry. He's really hungry. He has desires that are natural. We all have desires that were given to us by God and we're to manage them in a healthy way. Food, intimacy, relationships, security, meaning. We have these desires that within us and we fulfill them in a healthy way, appropriate way. There is no harm in that. But whenever we take these desires and fulfill them inappropriately, it moves from healthy to hurtful. Gluttony, lust, affairs, control, perfectionism, etc. These are ways which we fulfill our God-given desires with human selfishness. And we hurt ourselves and we hurt others. Esau shows up. He arrives at this place and his desires are just screaming within him. And he does something that seems foolish. Doesn't it seem so foolish? But it is so incredibly human. He trades something of great worth for something temporary and fleeting. He trades his future for a fix. He, he trades his destiny for a desire. He trades, he trades what will be his mission in life for a momentary meal. And that is sin in a nutshell. Anytime we trade in God's calling, trade in our character, our holiness, our mission, our destiny for a momentary desire, a fix, we're following in the footsteps of Esau. We're choosing our desires over God's design and destiny for us. 
Anytime we choose lust or revenge or rage or, or gossip or gluttony or yelling at an airport attendant in a moment of weakness or temptation, it's just a bowl of soup. And it fills us for an instant, but, but the cost is higher than we ever could have imagined. And guess what? We'll be hungry again in no time. Lust never leaves you fulfilled for the long term. That revenge that we thought would really settle down our hearts, it never quite does. Sin never satisfies. In fact, sin only sparks your appetite for more sin. So first question, how do you handle yourself in moments of weakness, moments of temptation, moments where your desires are screaming within you like Esau? Moments when you see sin that is so appealing, do you, do you fight against it? Have you given up the fight? Are there places you just cave? Or perhaps you remove yourself from the situation and therefore remove yourself from the temptation. Where in life are you presently choosing temporary fixes of sin over God's call to destiny and holiness in your life? Like Esau, where are we choosing a fix over faithfulness. You see, God is calling you in those places to be honest. And one thing we agree with here at the Orchard is honesty. And the first step is to get honest with God about those places that you are chasing fixes over faithfulness. The second place is to get honest with yourself. Be honest that those are outside the circle of God's design and holiness. And then honestly, part of it is to, to be honest with somebody else to maybe get some accountability Esau came in from the field in a weakened state. And in that state, he chose instant gratification. I would say know the areas of your life where you come in weakened, famished, where, where you are vulnerable to sin and begin to understand those situations and avoid them. Where in our private lives are we following in the footsteps of Esau? Trading in our holiness trading in our character for temporary fixes of sin. But what about Jacob, the patriarch? I mean, Jacob, he takes advantage of his brother who's in this weak condition. Catch this. He sees someone else who is in need, and he recognizes that because of their need, he can gain. And he offers to help his brother, help his brother with a condition he manipulates a close relationship for personal gain. That's what Jacob does. Look at Jacob's next big moment and see how he responds under pressure and in the face of temptation. Years later, Jacob's father, Isaac, he is old, he is, he is blind, and he thinks he's about to die. And he calls to his oldest son, Esau, and says, bring me a bowl of that stew. I will, I will eat the stew. And then Esau, I will give you the blessing of the father. Well, Esau and his mother get onto this plan. And while, I'm sorry, Jacob and his mother, they, they hear about this plan. And while Esau is still out hunting, Jacob enters the tent with fur on his forearms and his neck and with a bowl of stew. And he deceives his, he deceives his own father, pretending to be his brother. And his father blesses him, blesses Jacob. Again, we give Jacob a free pass because he's a biblical patriarch but we shouldn't because in both instances, what did Jacob do? 
Esau's sin was one of instant gratification, giving into his temptation. And it's obvious, and we get it. We get that. Jacob's sin is one of relational manipulation. At the heart, Jacob sees other people as a means to an end. And he wants to use them to get his desires met. He's the supplanter. His name means literally to trip up. And when it comes to Esau's birthright, he does supplant his brother. And when it comes to his father's blessing, he trips up and deceives his father. Both of these close relationships for personal gain. Jacob's sin isn't as obvious as Esau's, but I want to say this, it's just as common. And it's something we should look for in our own lives. Anytime, anytime we leverage our relationship with someone else for personal gain, we partner with Jacob. Anytime we use other people to get what we want, we're choosing selfish gain over relationship. Anytime we manipulate those around us to fulfill our desires and our desires for security, our desires for affection, our desires to get ahead and work, our desires financially, or simply mostly our desires to get our way. Anytime we manipulate people through flattery or guilt or dishonesty or even threats, can we call it what it is? It's sin. Now, this is a very fun message, right? You guys are so thrilled you showed up. You brought a guest. You, you'll love this church. Last week, he spoke on how God's face is toward us. Just wait. <laughs> you get the sin message. But I want, this is important. And I, and, I, and I want to connect it to the New Testament. I want to connect it to Jesus because what would he say about, about all this? You know, here at the Orchard, we have our T-shirts, but it's not just our T-shirt that says love God, love people. It's our church's DNA. It's who we are. And I've heard from other well-meaning believers who say, man, that is so weak and so easy. You guys put the bar so low, love God and love people. And I just, I always, always want to challenge that. But I don't. But let's see what Jesus has to say about this. Because perhaps you're new with this and you, you see it on our t-shirts, but what does it mean in real life? You see, in Matthew and repeatedly in the Gospels, Jesus is traveling around speaking. And, and he is talking about deep, bedrock, core issues of the Bible and of the human condition. And the Pharisees, the religious elite, they don't like him. And they want to trap him. And so what do they do? They think up these theological questions and it's like this big showdown. The people are all around it, you know, and they're listening and, and here's the deal. If they can trap Jesus and get him to slip up theologically, then they can discredit everything about him and he can just quietly go away. All they need is one, one shot to get Jesus to mess up. And so in Matthew twenty two thirty five. One of the religious leaders, an expert in the, in the law, which means he had the Old Testament memorized. Now, there were no chapter and verses, but if you started a verse in Isaiah, this gentleman could finish it. Their schooling to be an expert in the religious law, they had to memorize the Torah, the Tanakh, they had to memorize the whole thing. So he comes up and he has this question that they've all thought of. Teacher, which is the most important commandment in the law of Moses? Now, this is a big question. I mean, what would you say? There's 10 of them, right? The 10 big ones, you know, on the stone. Did you know there's actually 613 commandments in the Old Testament? 
613 commandments that they needed to follow. And then these Pharisees had added in, just on top of it, stacks and stacks of their own commandments. So they're asking Jesus, of all the 613, hey, hey, out of all of this that Moses gave us, what's the most important one? And he better answer right or they're gonna discredit him. So which one, Jesus? He says, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. Now he's quoting the Old Testament here. Jesus declares above all things that you should love God above all earthly affections, love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, first and foremost, love God. But then he goes on, in verse 39, a second and equally important, love your neighbor as yourself. Now he goes on in another place to describe who your neighbor is, and it's not the person living next to you. It doesn't mean just them, it means people. What he's saying here is love God, love people. But he continues, and he says something only the author of the Bible could say. The entire law and all the prophets are summed up, are based on these two commandments. The entire the entire law and prophets are based on these two commandments of love God and love people. The word here for based, it actually means a few things. It means all the commandments in the Bible, all, all the prophets, all the commandments, it says it means they hang from, like, like they're, they're, they suspend, they are suppo only supported by these two things, love God and love people, which is so easy, right? I mean, it's just on a t-shirt, just love God and love people. But what does it look like when it's 2 a.m. at a ticket counter and your flight's canceled? What does it look like when you're driving on the interstate and someone's going slow in the left lane? Like, what does it look like when you're, when you're impatient with your children? What does it look like in real life to actually love God, love people? It's hard. And Esau and Jacob, at the core of what they did, at the core of what Jacob and Esau did is they broke these two core commandments. Esau, he chose instant gratification over his love for God. He chose himself over God. He failed to love God as he was asked to. And anytime you or I choose a fix of sin in our weakness, we transgress love God. You see, we also have a covenant with Jesus, a new covenant. And anytime we, we sin, I'm making that look like less, like worthless in my life compared to my own desires. I join with Esau in that moment. In fact, we're loving ourselves more than God. We're choosing temporary bowls of sin over the calling he's given us, over the character and the holiness he wants within us. But what about Jacob? Jacob loved himself and failed to love his brother. In fact, taking advantage of him. He took advantage of his father, his own father. Anytime you or I choose to manipulate others for personal gain, to get what we want out of them, we are in fact breaking the second of the great commandments. Love people. And that's where Jacob stands. Both Jacob and Esau disregarded the way God created them to live and to love. And that's what sin is for us. Disregarding the way God asked us to live and that God asked us to love. We are created to love God above all things, above all affections, above all relationships, above our own self, to, to love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love other people as our self. So why teach this sermon? 
I mean, last week was so encouraging. Last week's sermon was that God's face is toward you, and he's smiling, and that he loves you. Well, today's sermon must stand in light of that reality, that his face is toward you, and he does love you because of the sacrifice of Jesus. He loves you and me even when we choose the sin of Esau and give in to temporary fixes. He loves us even when we don't love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. He loves you when we choose the sin of Jacob and we don't love people the way that he's asked us. I preach this today for this reason, because holiness matters to God. And therefore, holiness should matter to you and me. Character matters. And following God should refine our character, should call us to greater character. And we should see the places where we are out of bounds of God's holiness and come back into the, 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 the holiness that he's called us to. We have been saved, we have been forgiven by Jesus, and we have been loved by him. And because of that, out of love for him, we should choose to say no to what he's asked us to say no to. When you say no out of love, it's much different than saying no out of duty. To say no to the secret and pet sins that we indulge in. To, to say no to the relational manipulation that we are tempted to engage in. So here's the question. Where, it, where is it in your life that you are giving into the sin of Esau and indulging in, in, in fulfilling your desires outside of God's design, outside of his holiness, outside of where you, he would ask you? And, and, and I'm, in the first service, I had them raise their hand and come up here on stage and tell everybody, I'm not gonna do that with you guys. But the truth is, like, you know, you know the areas that you struggle with this. You know the areas that you're choosing a fix over faithfulness. You know the areas when I, that God would call you to say no to those things. But let me speak some good news of Jesus into those areas. 1 John 1.19 says this, if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful, he is just, he forgives us of all our sins and he cleanses us from all wickedness. The good news of Jesus is this, when you come, when you come to him and his sacrifice, you cannot outsin his grace. You cannot outsin the grace of God. So the, for those, there's, there's a couple different people here today. There are those who are in such shame and such guilt. They hear this, oh, you're right, and I am terrible, and this is why God wants nothing to do with me. His face is toward you. He loves you. Because of the sacrifice of Jesus, you are forgiven. And you can't work your way or do penance back into his good graces because Jesus did all the work. You're already there. And the Bible says no condemnation in Christ. You're not condemned. You're convicted, convicted to come back, to come closer. Here, here, here's the indicator when it comes to sin. Condemnation always makes you want to run from God. And that's not what God wants. Conviction from God always calls you closer in your sin. So if you're feeling condemnation to move away from him, that's not God. If you're feeling conviction, even in your sin to come closer, that's him drawing you. My beloved daughter, my beloved son, you're forgiven. Come home. Jesus gave up his life to cover all the areas where we follow in the footsteps of Esau, choosing instant gratification over holiness and character and calling. And so during communion, I want, us to, I want you to not to take it in our... I want you to slow down communion today. And if you don't have the communion, uh, we have some up here at the, at the front. 
Um, but 1 Corinthians eleven twenty eight says, everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat the bread or drink from the cup. And that's what I want you to do today. I want you to confess your sin. Those places like Esau, where you are outside of God's call and holiness, I want you to confess those. You know those areas. Confess those to him, where you're indulging in the fixes. Confess those private places you're indulging in sin. And, and I just want to let you know, you know, when, when Micah and the band and myself and the produ- production team gather before a service, we have a time of prayer. And we always say it every Sunday. Like, we can't play good enough music, we can't preach good enough service, and we can't produce good enough to change anyone's character or heart. That is sacred ground that God's spirit treads. And so the most important part of this whole service is this communion where we're praying that the Holy Spirit and you would interact and you would say, where is it I'm outside of your calling and, and, and where is it you want my character to come back into alignment with your holiness? Where is it I need to confess sin? Listen to his spirit and that conviction. Confess it and then partake. Second question, where is it you're giving into the sin of Jacob and you're guilty of manipulating other people. Again, we confess our sin in those places. Confess to God how you have, you have used or guilted those around you to get what you need, even in your weakness. Confess how you've hurt your spouse, your children even. Manipulate your coworkers, or your friends, employees, or boss. Confess those to God. Ask him to show you those places to confess. And for some of you, for some of you, there will be a, a, one more step as you leave this place to go and confess to that person and say, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry that I've been doing this. But I want us to spend some time in, in the presence of the Holy Spirit asking him, where do we need to confess before we partake? Because the, the blood and body of Jesus, it symbolizes his his great sacrifice. So we don't take it lightly. We take it with great gratitude and with great honor. We say, thank you, God, for Jesus who forgives us. So let's have a time of honest confession of those places where we're indulging in sin or manipulating those around us and ask God's spirit to guide us before communion.